We've been talking about uh, the concept of freedom because it's the it's the theme of the chapter uh, of, the, of the whole book of Galatians, but it's a theme of especially chapter five. It's concentrated therein in chapter five. And one of the, the, the tagline for the whole sermon series that we'll finish up next week is this, it's set free to live free. And the truth is, is that oftentimes we can be, possibly we could be set free. We can be experiencing freedom or, or we could be uh, set free, but we may not be living in freedom. That freedom is something that almost has to be felt before it can be enjoyed. You, ha- you have to experience uh, um, what freedom is and be able to define it and kind of know what it is in order to experience what real freedom is. Now, we're not talking about political freedom, but that's true in political uh, situations. One of my close friends was a missionary in uh, China for 10 years. And now he's home, he pastors a church uh, outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And so sometimes I'll talk to Shane and I'll be like, hey, tell me about China. And one of the things that he's told me about China is like the concept of political freedom to a Chinese person that's never experienced it is so foreign to them. They don't know anything but communism and the way that they've grown up in communism. And so when Shane would tell them about the way that things are in America, he would be like, you know, so the government's not like spying on you all the time. Now, conspiracy theorists, it's not the government that's doing it. It's Google that's doing it, just so you know, right? But in China, anytime my friend Shane would leave his apartment and get on a train and go outside of the city that he was assigned to, anytime he would do that, he would get a phone call on his cell phone that would be a governmental uh, official that was assigned to the Harchfield family. And he would say, hey, Shane, where are you going? And Shane would have to say, well, I'm going to, and there was a store that sold cereal, Fruity Pebbles in the next city over. I'm going to get some Fruity Pebbles. And while he was there, he was also doing other things, but he would tell them that, you know, he'd meet, meeting with pastors who pastored underground churches. But the concept of religious freedom, the concept of political freedom, government is so foreign to them because they've never experienced it in the same way It's foreign to us to think about bondage. And what I said last week is here's the truth is every human being, you're born into bondage, bondage of sin and bondage to the flesh and bondage that we could go on. And some of you know what that's like. You've been, it's evidenced itself in addictions in your life and it's evidenced itself in anxieties that we feel. And we can go on and go on as we're gonna talk about the works of the flesh. We're born into that every Human being is born into bondage, but you've been made free. And oftentimes like an animal that's been in its kennel or in its cage, you can open up the cage door and then you got to shoo it out of the stall. You know what I'm saying? You got to shoo it out. Hey, you're free now. Come on, get out of here. That's what Christ is doing. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. That's what Paul is doing as he writes this text. He's shooing us out of the stall to say to you, you're free. Now go and live in freedom. And so that's what I want to talk about. I started last week. I'm going to talk about what freedom feels like. Because this is what Jesus gives us. He gives us feelings. It's not just a, a, a declaration of freedom that he speaks over us, although that is true, but he also gives to us the Holy Spirit that enables us to finally live free and to feel free. And so what does freedom feel like? Well, freedom feels like the fruit of the Spirit. It feels about like what we've been talking about here, what what Paul describes here in this, uh, in this chapter, it feels like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness in our hearts and in our lives. Gentleness, which is humility. 
feels like self-control. Goodness, who doesn't want some of that? Who doesn't want to experience that and live like that? Listen, it's not accidental that as we find inside a chapter where the Bible is describing freedom, it's not accidental that we find ourselves neck deep into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. On this chapter on freedom, in a, in a, there's an entire section that we're gonna cover this morning that Anna read for us on the work and the power of the Spirit because it is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who allows us to experience freedom. It's Jesus who sets us free by his finished work on the cross and and an empty tomb and as he ascends on high, but it is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our real lives that allows us to finally feel free. Let's talk about some truths about the Holy Spirit because sometimes the Holy Spirit can kind of get a bad rap. I like to say in some of the churches maybe you were raised in, I, I was raised Baptist. Now I was raised in a church that, kind of prided itself. We said we were Baptocostal, but still a lot of you maybe grew up in a Baptist church. And for you growing up in a Baptist church, maybe your Trinity, I say this, looked like this, was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? You never really talked about the Holy Spirit. Others of you, you grew up in a more maybe Pentecostal or charismatic church. And there it was like, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, right? (laughs) Or whatever it may have been. It was the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But The Trinity in the Bible puts equal and correct emphasis on all three members of the Trinity and on their function. The Bible teaches us and reveals to us how they function and how they work. And here's one truth that we could say about the Holy Spirit. It's this, every believer has the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't be a believer apart from the Holy Spirit. It is God who sends the Spirit upon you that softens your heart, that gives you faith, that regenerates you, that changes your disposition and allows you to be converted, allows you to turn your back on your sin and turn towards Christ. It is the spirit who illuminates the gospel to you. See that in 2 Corinthians chapter four, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they may not see Christ in his beauty and in his power. Think about the numbers of times you heard the preaching of the gospel and yet the gospel wasn't beautiful to you. You didn't, wasn't drawn to it. Remember my own life. There was a time when I was about 12 years old and my grandfather was preaching and he was preaching the gospel. And I remember hearing the words that were coming out of his mouth. And I remember thinking, oh, that sounds so good, but there wasn't any faith in me to believe in them. It sounded good to my flesh. It sounded good to, and whose flesh doesn't want to, miss hell and hit heaven, right? It sounded good, but it wasn't faith. It wasn't spirit-fueled faith. And then I heard again, the gospel. I heard the gospel tons of times, bunches of times. I probably could have recited it and quoted it, but yet the gospel wasn't at home in my heart. The light switch hadn't come on yet for me to believe in it. And how did that happen? It wasn't me. It wasn't my intellect. It wasn't my conscience. It wasn't any of those things. It was the Holy Spirit of God that God By an extension of his grace, he gave me the Holy Spirit, regenerated my heart, and with faith, I believed in Christ and was saved in that and was converted in that. So every believer has the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning, this is what we're talking about. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, when we talk about sanctification, we're not talking about you becoming a better you. We're not talking about self-improvement or self-betterment. 
That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is sanctification. We're talking about you being changed into the, conformed into the image of Christ. You being changed into Christ's likeness. We're talking about the old you dying and laying into a tomb, a spiritual tomb and a new you being resurrected by the power of God. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about what you studied in school when you studied about Ben Franklin and his 13 virtues. Ben Franklin would study each virtue and he would think about those things, say, oh, I need to grow in humility. And let me think about humility and let me write what humility is. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying you need to pull all the fruit apart and you need to think about love and then you think about joy and then you think about peace and try your best and try really, really hard to be as loving as you can. That's not what Paul is speaking about. What he's talking about is the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, coming and resting and residing in the conscience of a human being and regenerating you and making you brand new and filling you with life and setting you free and giving you fruit. That's what he's speaking about. That's what he's talking about here. If you're here this morning and you've yet to be made new, you've yet to believe upon Christ, you've yet to confess your sin, to call upon him for forgiveness. And you can try to be a better you and maybe you can achieve that. People achieve that all the time in moral living, but that's not what we're speaking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about you trying to be a better good old boy or good old girl. That's not what he's talking about. And at the ends, like, man, it helps us in the society, but at the ends, your life will end in this way. Every human life ends here, it ends in a courtroom where the all-knowing, all-seeing God is the just judge of the universe and he judges your soul. And you may have been a good old boy and a good old girl, listen to me. I say this to you lovingly. Hell will be filled with good old boys and good old girls who never believed upon Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Your goodness will never erase your sins that you have committed against a thrice holy God. All the good works that you can pile up, all the little old ladies as you help across the street, all of the little puppies that you rescue from an impoundment, all of your good works, all of the money that you give will never erase a single sin, will never bring justification and a righteousness to which with which only can be found in Christ. There is only one way to be made right with God and it is through Jesus. It is through faith in him and believing in him and trusting in him and calling him your Lord and calling him your savior and and taking a place of submission beneath him and allowing him to change change you and transform you. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a change from the inside. That's what we're speaking about. And what Paul says here in this text is Paul says that those who have the Holy Spirit, which is who has the Holy Spirit? Believers, right? Every believer, every believer has the Holy Spirit. So those who have the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us then we must do these things. He says, then we must uh, walk in the Spirit. We must be led by the Spirit. We must live by the Spirit. We must keep in step with the Spirit, that every believer has the Holy Spirit, but not every believer does those things all the time. 
In fact, we see that in the conditional statement Paul uses, if you, if you walk by the Spirit, if you are led by the Spirit, if you live by the Spirit. It is a conditional statement, but it is not an optional statement. And what I mean by that is only Christians can walk by the Spirit and only Christians will walk by the Spirit. It's only a spirit, only a Christian can do it. And Christians, real Christians, people that have been converted, you will do it. Paul says in Romans 8 that to set our mind on the things of the flesh, very similar to what he's saying here in Galatians 5, to set our mind on the things of the flesh is death. You've not been born again, you're still dead. But to set your mind on the things of the spirit is life and peace. You're born again, you're experiencing life. That we're called to do this as an evidence to Christ working in us. But let's talk about, if we could, to define what it means to be, to walk in the Spirit. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to be filled, Paul says in Ephesians, with the Spirit? It means this, it means to walk in the Spirit is to live every day with a personal awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence and power and work in your present and real life. It is for you to get up in the morning with an awareness, a realization that these truths are true about you if you're in Christ. It's you getting up saying, Holy Spirit, I want to be led by you. I want to be filled by you. I want to live in you today. I want to keep in step with where you're going. I want to follow. I want to be the... <laughs> I want to be the follower and I want you to be the leader. That is what it means. It means to live every day in submission and in trust to the Holy Spirit through your obedience to the word of God. It means to live every day in submission and trust. What I mean by that is you're willing to lose every argument with God in his declared and in his revealed word. It means you allowing God's word to correct you that you bring your thoughts, your thoughts about things, your thoughts about your life, your thoughts about sin, your thoughts and your opinions, your ideas, you bring all of those things into submission to the revealed word of God, into congruence with the word of God. You let your mind be shaped by scripture rather than you using your mind to somehow shape scripture. You say, Lord, I trust you. I want to be, I've submitted to you. you. You, through the power of the Spirit, you illuminate the word to me. You show it, you reveal it and help me to love it and help me to believe it and help me to follow it. That's what Paul is meaning here. He means that we live every day with the goal is to cultivate the presence of the Holy Spirit. I said this last week, but the Spirit isn't a, it isn't an impersonal force. It's the opposite. It is a person. It's the person of the Holy Spirit residing in us, in our conscience, controlling us. That's what, the, that's what the Spirit is. And so it's living every day where you cultivate His presence. You cultivate His presence through obedience and through trust and through the graces of God. Through the habits of grace. Do you know how to build a fire? Like I, I take it for granted that most of you would know how to build a fire, but I went camping one time. I told Mr. Billy, who was a Boy Scout leader, and so was Pastor Frank for years. They were Boy Scout leaders. I was a Boy Scout, be prepared. One time I went camping, not with the Boy Scouts, but with my youth group, and I had an Eagle Scout with me. And I said to the Eagle Scout, hey, you're an Eagle Scout. Can you get us a fire going? And the dude didn't know how to start a fire. And I was like, you're an Eagle Scout? You don't know how to start a fire? Um, 
If you don't know how to start a fire, see Bill Jones. He's burned down half a bald knob before. <laughs> Starting a fire, right? What do you do to start a fire? Well, you take some stuff called kindling, right? Some flammable material that's small, right? You take some kindling and you put it somewhere that you're gonna start a fire and then you take something that can ignite it, something that can, can, can create a spark, whether it's a flint and steel or it's a Bic lighter or it's a Zippo lighter or it's a match or it's a magnifying glass, something that can, that it can ignite that. And then it starts what starts as a, as a spark. It ignites the kindling. And then what you do is you add more flammable material to that. And then this raging fire hopefully takes place, right? And hopefully it's in a fireplace, not out in a field or it's in a fire pit, something like that. But that's how you start a fire is you take kindling and you place it and you place a spark. Listen, the Holy Spirit walking, cultivating the Spirit. The Spirit is like that spark that is there right? It, it's, it's there and your job of walking in the spirit is living every day where you're cultivating, you're, you're placing flammable material all around for that Holy Spirit to ignite it and to grow it and to burn into, a, well, a, a raging fire that's the love of God. That's Rich Mullins. That's what he, he said. And it's true. That's what it means every day. You want to experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Those things don't come by focusing on those things. See, we already have an erroneous view when it comes to those things because we think the way that God teaches us those things is by putting us in positions where we will need them and to show us how woefully we are in those things. And we say that, don't we? Even within Christian circles, and sometimes I feel that. What I feel like whenever I get in every line in a day, whether it's at McDonald's, well, I don't eat at McDonald's. Well, yeah, I do, but I get salad. Okay, I'm lying. I eat McDonald's all the time. I love Big Macs. All right, whether you're at McDonald's or you're at Kroger or wherever it is, you get stuck in traffic. What do you say? Well, I guess God needs to teach me patience. And so he's put me here in this place to teach me patience, but that's not how God teaches us patience. He teaches us patience by giving us the perfect instructor in patience, which is the Holy Spirit. And what your job is to do is to wake up with an awareness that the spirit is the master teacher and he's living and residing in me. And he wants to not just teach me patience, but give me patience as I cultivate his presence by adding flammable material around him. What is the flammable material? Well, it's the habits of grace. It's the spiritual disciplines. It's prayer and reading and taking in God's word and delighting in God's word and thinking about God's word. It's meditating on scripture. It's fasting. It's giving. It's serving. It's loving. It's remembering Christ in the elements that we're about to do. It's attending church that when you're here, what is occurring, if you're here and if you're present, what's occurring as you sit under the preaching of the gospel, as you think about the songs that we sing, as you do all of those things that there is, uh, you're adding flammable material you're adding flammable material to the spark of the Holy Spirit so that he may fuel your week, but it's not enough. In fact, there's a book that I tell you a couple, let me tell you uh, three books that I want every one of you read, to read. The Bible, four books, the Bible. But two is a book that I talk about often is um, a book called Pilgrim's Progress. It's written by a guy by the name of John Bunyan. And it's an allegory. It's an old book. It's written in the 1600s. It's an old book and it's an allegory. It's telling a story. Uh, in some ways, uh, the Lord of the Rings does this as well. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe does this as well, but none of them beat 
Pilgrim's Progress as far as an allegory of the Christian life. And if you haven't read it, grab it and try to read it. It's fantastic. And there's a moment in uh, Pilgrim's Progress when Christian, who's the main character, who is going to the celestial city, so that's where we're all headed towards heaven. But in, he's new in his journey of faith and he's taken into a, a building, a house. It's called the interpreter's house. And as he goes into the interpreter's house, the interpreter shows him a fire that's burning against a wall. Okay, so there's this fire that's burning against the wall and there's a man standing there and he's dousing the fire with water. But as he douses the fire with water, the fire only grows hotter and bigger and higher. And Christian asked the interpreter, what does this mean? What's this fire and this guy casting the fire and why can't he quench the fire? And he says, you can't quench the fire because of this. And I think it's like walk through a door and they look on the other side. And on the other side, of the wall, there's still, uh, the fire's still burning and there's a man on the other side and he's pouring oil on the fire. He's pouring fuel to the fire. And Christian says, what does that mean? And the interpreter says, the man throwing the water on the fire is the devil and the water is the flesh. And the man on the other side is Christ through the power of the spirit, he's adding fuel to the fire the fuel of the fire that the spirit adds is the disciplines of godliness. It is those things that I just talked about. It's the habits of grace. It's taking in God's word and it's praying and it's meditating on God's word and it's listening to worship music and it's thinking about the things of God and causing your heart to delight in those things. That's what, that's the fuel that's added to the fire. That what the Apostle Paul says here is he says that um, there's a war going on inside of every believer. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit. Yes, if you are genuinely saved, and yes, victory is yours and you will not be defeated, but there is a daily battle taking place in your very real and in your very heart, in your very life every day. That battle is taking place is between two things. It is between the spirit and the flesh. Now, I'm gonna show you an illustration and I freely admit that it is the corniest illustration that I could possibly think of this morning. I mean, I've thought of cornier ones, but just this morning. And yet I, I will set aside my coolness, even though I've never seen John Piper do this, I will set aside my coolness for just a moment for the sake of trying to teach you something because I love you that much. But the flesh is inside of you. And he is, according to the text, he's launching desires in you. The flesh comes in and the flesh isn't just absent. The flesh isn't just hanging out. The flesh wants to destroy you. It's old, it's corrupt, it's dead. And what he wants to do in your life is to give you desires, sinful desires that lead to the works of flesh that ultimately leads forth to death. But there is, if you are a believer, my bad hand will be the spirit. There is within you the spirit of God. Every believer it's the spirit. And now the spirit is at work. And what does Paul say there? Well, the spirit is at work in you and the spirit brings desires as well. And they conflict one another, right? There's conflict here, right? That's happening. And every believer you live every day, either you are gratifying the flesh and grieving the spirit. This is the part I want you to see. Either you're living, you, this doesn't exist. You can't gratify the flesh and live for the spirit, that doesn't happen. Either you are gratifying the flesh and grieving the spirit, or you're walking in accords to the spirit. You're glorifying 
Christ, you are cultivating the spirit. And in doing so, you are what the Puritans called mortifying the flesh. So either you are gratifying the flesh and grieving the spirit, or you are cultivating the spirit. And as you cultivate the spirit, it mortifies the flesh. That's Romans 8, 13. Mortify doesn't mean like, oh, I was so mortified. It doesn't mean to embarrass. Mortify means to put to death. It means to kill. That's what mortify means. It's Romans 8, 13. If you by the spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is you putting to death the deeds of the body, the flesh by how? By the power of the spirit, by cultivating the spirit. Living in the spirit, living by the spirit, being filled with the spirit is simply that, is living your life with an awareness and a cooperation and a partnership with the spirit. And as you do that, yes, you will have to crucify the flesh, but it is the spirit. It is the cultivation of the spirit that puts to death the deeds of the flesh. Now let's spend some time, just a few minutes with the text. We actually begin this morning into verse number 19. What Paul says here is the flesh through deceitful desires produces works in us and it is sinful works. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. They are sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality. They're idolatry and sorcery. They're enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. As Paul lists them here, they actually take shape into uh, four categories. Now, this isn't a complete comprehensive list. You can find other lists in other places, like I think uh, Ephesians 3 would be a great place. In the book of Colossians, you have a list like this. In Romans, Romans the first chapter, you have a list like this. First Corinthians, you have a list like this. So it's not a comprehensive list, but here they take form into, it's shape into four categories. There is sexual sin, sexual immorality, which is sexual activity, between unmarried people, impurity, which is unnatural sexual practices and relationships that would include homosexuality. There's sensuality, which or debauchery, which is uncontrolled sexuality. The next category is pagan religious practices, idolatry and sorcery, or maybe your Bible says witchcraft. They're occult and pagan religious practices When he speaks about idolatry, he's talking about actual idolatry, not heart idolatry, but you worshiping something else. And um, as my grandfather would say, just don't don't think that just because you didn't ride in here on a broom that you can't participate in witchcraft and sorcery. Some of you caught that. It's true. We live in an increasingly pluralistic society where false religions are abounding and false ideas like karma come up and Next thing you know, you're thinking about something that is sorcery and witchcraft and idolatry and is not Christianity. Karma's not Christian. Verses 20 through 21 describe how the flesh destroys relationships for destructive attitudes. So think about it. I think there's 14, eight of them are about relationships. In fact, we'll talk about this next week. Four are destructive attitudes, attitudes, enmity, which is hatred and jealousy and rivalries, which means over, being overly competitive and envy. And then the next four describe the result of these attitudes in relationships, strife and fits of anger and dissensions and divisions. 
And finally, there's two words that reference substance abuse, drunkenness and orgies. Orgies here, as it's used here, were um, drunken feasts that lasted all night long. I mean, back in the day, people stayed up all night partying. Can you imagine that, right? And this is what it's about. (laughs) Times have changed. No, they haven't. And the desires of the flesh, they produce works of the flesh. Next, Paul gives us this stark warning. I warn you, he says. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That your cooperation in mortifying the flesh, it gives evidence to your salvation. Right? This, this runs up against, runs uh, against the grain. It uproots complacency in the life of the Christian. Now, Paul is referencing the habitual practice rather than infrequent and repented of lapses. He's saying a person who continually indulges in the sinful nature without battling against it, he shows the son has not redeemed them. The spirit has not changed them. They are not of his. They do not belong to him. But then you have the contrast to the fruit of the spirit. Verse number 22. Now, I'd love to spend tons of time here on each one, but we don't have that. But let's just read them again. Let's hear them again. The fruit that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives, the attitudes and the character that he fills us with is this, that we become loving, joy-filled, and and peace. Even when everything around us is chaos, there's peace in us. We're patient, we're kind, and we're good, and we're faithful, and we're gentle. That really means humility. We're gentle. And we're in self-control and against such things, there is no law. What he's saying is you can't law your way into being more patient. You can't law your way. You can't just tell yourself, be more loving. Like, wouldn't you, don't you wish it could work that way, right? Don't you wish your spouse could just look at you and go, you need to be more loving. Now be more loving. I command you to be more loving. Like it doesn't work that way. Something has to change you from the inside that allows that. And that's what he's saying, that the law doesn't produce fruit of the spirit. It's the spirit that produces fruit. It's not a comprehensive list of qualities, but listen, this is what Paul's doing. It's describing one thing to us. He's not describing whatever, there's like eight of these or maybe more. He's not describing uh, these seven things or seven of them. He's describing one thing, not seven attributes, not seven adjectives. I'm sorry, he's using seven attributes, seven adjectives, seven descriptors to describe one thing. And the one thing that he's describing is what a Christian, the character of a Christian, the attitude of a Christian. He's not saying like, here, let's talk about these seven different things. No, 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 no. What he's saying is here's what a Christian looks like. It'd be equivalent to you trying to describe the Grand Canyon to somebody who's never seen it. You would say, oh my gosh, you've never seen the Grand Canyon in person? Well, I've seen pictures, but yeah, it's not the same. You've never seen the Grand Canyon? Oh my gosh, it's massive. How is it massive? What do you mean it's massive? Well, it's really, really, really deep, but it's not just really, really deep because it's not a hole. It's really, really expansive. It's really, really wide and it's beautiful. Like, have you ever seen it? It's like all of these layers of rock in there and each rock has kind of a different color and it's all the colors that you think about when you think about the West. It's this beautiful orange and beautiful yellows. It's it's beautiful in those ways and it, and it produces in you a sense of awe 
It's, it, it produces in you a sense of, of smallness as you stand there. You're just in awe of this absolutely beautiful thing. And see what I've done there is I'm describing a thing, one thing to you, the Grand Canyon. But I'm using all of these different descriptors in order to describe that. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's using all these descriptors, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, right? In order to describe one thing. And that one thing is a life that's been transformed by the power of the spirit. That's what he's talking about. He says that the flesh produces works. Works indicate something that you do. Your flesh does something. But notice he doesn't say the works of the Spirit. He could say that, but he doesn't. But he says the fruit of the Spirit. And that's intentional. It's not accidental. That's intentional in the language that he's doing. That fruit is something that's done through you. It's something that, 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 that you have to yield yourself open yourself up to in order for it to happen. It just says the ground has to be broken up in order for it to receive a seed. In the same way, you have to yield yourself, give yourself, open yourself up to the, to the work of the Spirit. And that's what he's doing here. He's using intentional and deliberate metaphor when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's used throughout Scripture, kind of a botanical growth, a spiritual growth and transformation but three things that we will end with when we talk about um, this, this imagery that's conjured up by the fruit of the Spirit. What it means for us is three things about our spiritual growth. The spiritual growth is gradual growth. Spiritual growth and transformation is inevitable growth. And number three is, is internal growth. Internal, not eternal, but internal growth. It's gradual growth in this. It's the kind of growth that you can't see. Rarely do you ever like see something grow. You only see that it has grown, right? When you, this winter, or I mean this spring, whenever you decide to plant your tomatoes, um, plants, what you'll do is you will take a seed and you'll bury it in the ground and you'll cover it up. And you won't see that you won't see that, that sprout form out of that seed. You won't see that shoot come up. You'll see that there is a shoot there, but you won't see that it happened. You won't see it watching it grow. You won't see the blossom produce a bud and then the bud become a, 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 a tomato, a green tomato. You'll see all of those things, but you won't actually see it happen. Those of you that are teachers in the room, you don't see kids grow, parents, you don't really see kids grow all the day. All you know is one day you wake up and their, their pants like hit them like mid, you know, mid calf now, right? All you do is you go to put their shoes on them one day and you got to buckle their feet to put their shoes in there. And you go, good grief, what happened to you, right? Teachers, you know this, they leave, kids leave for summer break and they come back and what you say is, hey, I think you've grown. I think you've grown a foot over the summer, but nobody really sees your, sees your kids grow. They only see that they have grown. And the same is true for spiritual growth. It's slow growth. It's gradual growth. You don't see it happening. You have to be patient with it. You don't see that it's happened. You can only measure it. You don't even feel that it's happened. You can't feel yourself growing, right? Well, maybe on Thanksgiving, some of us did, right? You, but you really don't feel yourself growing. But yet growth is something that can be measured. It's something that can be tested. 
You back your kids up against the wall and you make a tick, a mark on the wall. And you go, look, see how much you've grown? They go to the doctor and they do the little slide. Those of you that are athletic in the room and run or lift weights or do whatever, you don't feel your muscles growing. You don't feel like, hey, I think I've gotten faster. But what happens is you time yourself or you run a race. You go, by golly, I have got faster, right? And that's what you all say. You say, by golly, all the time, don't you? I have gotten faster. I am faster. I am quicker. And in the same way, listen, this kind of growth is gradual growth and happens so slowly. And it's only when it's tested that you realize you've grown. It's only when trials or temptations fall and you think, you know what? There was a time when I would have lost my temper and I would have punched the wall. Well, this hand. I would have punched the wall or I would have given, given that person a piece of my mind or I would have quit or I would have done this and you didn't. And what occurred? What happened there? Well, you've grown. The Spirit's produced gradual growth, but not only is it gradual growth, there's also its invisible growth. It's slow growth, and it's also inevitable growth. It's slow, and it's gradual, and it's invisible, but it's also inevitable. It is the fruit of the Spirit. The seed that is producing the fruit is the powerful third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. And if you have God, then you will change. You will grow. You will exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You will begin to worry less. You will become a more loving person. You'll be a more generous person. You will be a more humble person. You'll be able to face trials and temptations and be able to stand in those moments. It is inevitable. Not because you are so strong, but because the Holy Spirit is in you working and doing what he does, which is growing and producing fruit. There is in a graveyard in Italy, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a marble slab, there's a tomb there, a grave there. And it's been dug down and they placed it. I mean, it's old. It's like 600 years old. And placed on the top is a thick marble slab with a, some ornate features on the top of this marble slab. And an oak tree has grown in the grave, through the grave, and has split the slab open. And in fact, through the years, he has overtaken. It's overtaken the, 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 the tomb. It's overtaken the edifice that's all around this. How did this happen? Well, it's simple. Somehow an acorn got into the grave and the acorn produced a shoot and the shoot became a sapling and the sapling has grown into a massive tree and the tree has grown so big and so tall that it has split the marble slab in half. Now, if I was to ask you, what do you think stronger, an acorn or a slab of marble? What would you say? Using common sense, what would you say? I mean, think about it. Think about it. if I took a hammer and I had an acorn up here and I said, okay, which one's stronger? Which one has more potential? Which one has more power? Let's see. And you, if I was to hit that acorn with a hammer versus a marble slab, certainly we would all say, well, the slab is stronger, but no, it's not. If you were a betting man, don't ever place a bet on that. Place the bet on the acorn every time because the acorn wins every time. Thousands of weight on this tiny little acorn. But it's the truth of botanical growth. It's truth of the power of botanical growth. And the truth is, is if botanical growth, if agricultural growth, if an acorn can grow into a tree, if something as small, as small and unassuming as an acorn has that kind of power, that kind of potential in its, 
gradualness, then what kind of power would the spirit of the living God produce? If you have the spirit, then you've been born again. You've been regenerated by the spirit and you will grow and you will change. It is inevitable growth. It is inevitable change. It grows and it changes. How long was that little acorn underneath that slab of marble? A long time. Sometimes the spirit is working when you don't see him and you don't feel him. And what seems like it's so hard and so dense that nothing would penetrate it like your hard heart. Don't ever underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And lastly, it's internal. Not to be crass, but also what happened was that inside that grave, that acorn found fertile soil. The fertile soil was probably the uh, rotting corpse of the person in the grave. But the truth is that flesh makes great fertilizer for the spirit. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 24, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Sanctification begins with those beautiful words that Paul sets up in verse number 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus. He starts with belonging, not crucifixion. He starts with belonging, adoption, being welcomed in, not what you must do. He starts with what Christ has done, not what your flesh must do, not with your faith. He begins with the work of Christ and those who belong to Christ. Sanctification begins when we know that we belong to Christ. Belonging precedes doing in the Christian life always. And we have it here. And again, this imagery though is internal, uh, is intentional. Crucifixion, he says. Those who belong to Christ, they will, they have, they're crucified with Christ and they're crucifying their flesh. Their flesh is going down and the power of the Spirit is coming up as it's cultivated in us with its passions and with its desires you're putting to death. You're mortifying that. In fact, that brings us to the next book that I mentioned that I want you to read. It is the book of um, the mortification of sin. Thank you, Tom. It's this version of mortification of sin. Don't get the one that others of you, don't, don't get the one where you gotta like read Beowulf. It looks like this, it's from Banner of Truth, but it is a fantastic book. I commend it to you. It's on the list of like must reads, read this mug. It's hard to read, but it's great reading. Read this one. The one that looks like the guy with the wig, the powdered wig on it. That's John Owen. He's awesome. Read this one. It's fantastic, but that's what it's talking about. It's talking about crucifying. Crucifixion is not instantaneous. It's slow, it's painful, it's torturous death. It's strangling the life out of the flesh. That's what he's telling you. That's what we must do. Don't dare ever undermine the power of the Holy Spirit by saying, I can't change, I won't change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. No, you, if you are born again, you have the power of Christ. Cultivate that spirit. Cultivate him and watch God work and watch God grow you and watch God change you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word that instructs us and teaches us and guides us and shapes us and tells us of truth. And gosh, it works like, like flammable fuel on a fire. May we delight in your word. Even this morning, may we delight in, your, in the truths that have been declared in your word. May we delight in those things, Lord. Father, I pray that we would not be so quick to run out of here, that we would spend time with you, 
One of the means of grace that you've given to us, the habits and disciplines is the taking of the Lord's Supper. It is the remembering of you, Jesus. In fact, that's the command that we do this in remembrance of you. We remember that we belong to you and those who belong to you have crucified their flesh with its passions and its, with its desires. We don't just try to white knuckle it and try to live better and do more, Lord, but we go after the, the motivation behind the behavior. And the motivation is, is that we, we do the things that we love and that we enjoy and that we find pleasure in those things. The things that capture our heart and capture our affections and make us stand in awe of those things. Those are the things that we find ourselves doing, whether it's power or it's pleasure or whatever other work of the flesh that it may be. And may we, as we come to this, your supper, may we be captivated in me and all of you, Christ, and of your great love with which you have loved us. The great grace that you've lavished upon us. May we remember in this moment your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shed for us. That is by your stripes we are healed. By your stripes we've been set free. By your stripes we've been forgiven of our sins. And why have you done this for us? You have done this because of your great love and your grace. May we stand in all of you. May we be fully captivated, fully captivated by you and your beauty, your glory, your power, and your majesty that you would love sinners like us. You would come to rescue us. Thank you, Lord. And we spend time with you here in this place and in this time. May we do it with an awareness of your spirit that's working in us. Illuminate the gospel to those who have yet to hear. That those who have confused it with behavior modification and confused it with moral living and confused it with religious practices, Lord, may, may you thwart the work of our enemy that blinds the minds of unbelievers, and may you shine the gospel, the light of the gospel, shine it in men and women's hearts, even this morning. Resurrect the dead by your power. Those who in the room who may be struggling with an addiction, free them, even this morning, by the power of the Spirit, Lord. They may crucify the flesh with its desires and walk in newness of life, Lord. Walk in freedom, Lord. It's for your fame that we pray this and ask this. We thank you for your great grace that frees us and shoes us out of the, out of the cages. In your name we pray, amen.